Simple Beep, Episode 80, Fictional Mac Draft. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And as we record this episode, we are thinking a lot about Apple and TV. So it's been one week since Apple had their event officially launching Apple TV+, Plus, which is their new service coming later this year in 2019 that has billions of dollars of television and movies that they have themselves paid for the production of. And that got us to thinking about Apple's involvement in entertainment on the screen, big and small, and how that was usually limited to product placement. And in some cases, though, it goes beyond just a plain product placement, and that's going to be the subject of our episode today. But before we get to that, of course, we have a couple pieces of follow-up. Two episodes ago, in our episode 78, we talked about Apple Audio and uh, especially some built-in speakers in Apple products where you may have forgotten them. Um, and at MacFixer on Twitter reminded us of one that we forgot to include in our episode, which is that the Apple Mighty Mouse, the first one with like the multiple button functions and the little scroll ball, had an internal speaker inside itself purely to provide uh, a clicking sounds so that you knew that your scroll ball was indeed scrolling. <laughs> yeah, I remember having one of these with, I think, the iMac G4. That's about the era that the Mighty Mouse was from. And yes, so when the machine was off, you could roll the little scroll ball uh, because it was a sphere that would go in both directions. That was its big innovation above scroll wheels that you would find on other mice. And it would make a little clicking sound, you, and you could feel it clicking. Uh, it wasn't a perfectly smooth motion, similar to scroll wheels in some mice where you can actually feel a click, 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 and there's an increment. That's like a minimum scroll increment. And that was the case for the Mighty Mouse. And you could feel that, and you could hear it just a tiny, tiny bit when it was off. But then when it was on, it did produce this additional clicking sound, kind of like the... Uh, the click on the click wheel iPods. And this reminds me, we don't have this in our outline, but that reminds me that also in the Magic Trackpad 2, which is sitting right here on my desk, there's also a speaker. For the like the fake force click or whatever? For just regular clicks. And when it was launched, there was an option in the trackpad system preferences where you could enable or disable the speaker. And at some point, something went weird in the system software, and that setting is no longer available, at least for me. For some people have this problem and some people don't. I think it corresponded to them removing this setting for the internal trackpads in the MacBook line, MacBook Pro line, but that speaker is still there, and now I think mine is permanently set to on. So, oh, no. so I try to not click too much during the show, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's there and it's, it's noticeable, not as noticeable as if your magic trackpad comes completely disconnected for some reason. And suddenly your finger is just pushing into a surface that feels more solid than the table that it is resting on because your brain has been fooled. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's got another speaker in there as well. Speakers and input devices. Who would have thunk? And from our last episode, episode 79, where we talked about Bungie, some follow-up on the current status of Halo as a Mac app. So I think we had said that it was released as a PowerPC app, and that was the end of it. It turns out that there was a universal binary version, and interestingly, it was released as an upgrade, not just an update, but an upgrade that you could pay $5 if you were an existing Halo license holder and get the universal binary version, which I presume is a 32-bit universal binary, yeah. right? So still running now. And uh, I'm not going to put a link in the show notes. I'm just going to mention it here. Halo is available on the Macintosh Garden. I feel like this is in the gray area range of things that are not true abandonware 
like what the Macintosh Garden really has. I mean, the Halo IP is alive and well. Yes, the Macintosh version of the original Halo Combat Evolved is an aging game that has probably limited financial value to its rights holders, which are now Microsoft, though. So this is why you do not want to alert people to the fact that the Macintosh Garden is hosting this kind of thing, because it could bomb them (laughs) pretty badly. You know, some indie developer from 1989 who released a pair piece of shareware is not going to sue them into oblivion. Microsoft, on the other hand, uh, they have some lawyers and some money. (laughs) Um, But a couple interesting things I found on the page there. Uh, The Apple still run the universal binary with some caveats, of course. The, uh, The online multiplayer servers that existed at its launch are long gone, Although there does seem to be some kind of mod or patch that will let you connect to third-party pairing servers to perhaps still play Halo Online. So the entry on Macintosh Garden has like four or five files and kind of half instructions on how to maybe put them together to get what you want. And then at the very bottom they say, or... The really easier thing to do is to is they link to this other project called Halo MD, and that I will put a link in the show notes. <laughs> it's called Halo MD, and it is a I guess modified version of the Halo app that is basically made to run on current Macs up through the era of running 32-bit software, which we are still in at the moment. But uh, if you're listening to this in a couple of years, might not be. Is Halo MD a multiplayer only, like to try and get to third-party pairing servers? Or is it like full? If you say you have the the files to run the single-player campaign, you could make them work with Halo MD? Their website is very spare, I think, on purpose. But their their little tagline slogan is Halo MD extends the life of Halo and makes mods fun again. So I guess it is for modding, adding maybe even maps or levels. Um, they do have several downloads here and uh, and a forum that I'm loading now. I'm guessing this is probably PH. Yeah, it's PHP baby. <laughs> of course. It is. Um, but there are some recent posts in there, so. If uh, you are interested in getting into an active Halo 1 community, this is the place to go. Cool. Okay, so now on to the main part of our episode. And usually we tend to go through topics that we pick in chronological order. But this is not so much a history-based topic that we've chosen today, the existence of what we're calling fictional Macs. So not that they are... Macintosh computer models that didn't exist, but they are generally real Apple products that did exist and got placed into works of fiction, uh, and we're focusing on TV and movies. And the logical way to present these is definitely a draft. Yes. (laughs) So we are going to get that set up in just a moment here and go back and forth. It's not so much of a round robin as a bounce back and forth with two people, uh, but I wanted to lay out what the draft rules are. And to give you as a listener an idea of what we're picking from. So we we do not know each other's picks, but we do we have brainstormed a list of possible things to pick. And I think the ones that are at the heart of this are the items that you can say that this is a particular character's computer. So if you can say that this is the Macintosh thus and such model that belongs to this character in this piece of fiction, that is definitely available. And there may be some exceptions we'll see for ones that do not have as clear ownership, but a Mac that plays a significant role in a notable scene or in the plot of a movie or a TV show. So not just something that is somebody's office computer in the background. Uh, There may be some background Macs that are in the homes of characters. 
but it's not just like this is the Mac that somebody put on their desk at work. So I think those are the items. And I think that we have enough to go maybe like four rounds here and then do a summary of Bring Out Your Dead and any interesting things that got on our list, but maybe don't meet those criteria. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, we have to decide how to start the draft. And there's only one possibility. It's random.org. So I have the random.org coin flipper, and I'm going to do the flip so you get to make the call, Brian. Tails never fails. Okay. You flipped one coin of type Irish one euro, and it's tails. Oh! So you get the first pick. One other thing before we get started here is I wanted to say, um, this is not the draft rules, but maybe as a guide, if you are listening. So a lot of the things that we're talking about are... I don't know that there's any media property in here that's within like the last year or two. I, hopefully not. That would kind of be antithetical to our show. Well, it depends on where it's being set or whether there's a particularly old computer in the scene. But that being said, in terms of spoilers, there will probably be some mild to moderate spoilers <laughs> for properties that you should probably already know about. But here's here's my strategy for you, the listener. If you are when I listen to a podcast draft, I don't want to look at the show notes because I don't want to see what people have picked. So if you're worried about spoilers for this episode, do not look at the chapter listing. <laughs> do not do that. If on the other hand, you are worried about being spoiled for some spoiled for some media property that we're talking about, look now at the chapter listing and skip any chapter for a thing that you do not want to hear about. It's that simple. And one other thing before we get started, uh, we do want to credit two major sources that we used to more or less confirm things that we remembered or to find uh, additional famous fictional Max. And those are two blogs. One is named Starring the Computer, and another is called Max in Movies. Uh, Probably a lot of our show notes from the the Max we pick will go to their entries at one or the other of these two sites. Oh, yeah. And one other thing is that we've done our homework to verify the existence of the Max in these things. But there are some things on the list that I have not seen. I'm going to try not to pick things that I have not seen at all. But some of the things that I am going to pick, I have not seen in a long time. <laughs> if I get some sort of plot detail slightly wrong, please do not email us. It's about the spirit of it and what we remember from these iconic machines that have appeared in film enough to jog our memory that we went looking for them. Yeah, exactly. All right. With that being said, Brian, on to you with the first pick. All right. My first pick in the first round is the Performa 600 from blank check. You could have saved that for any round, but you went for it right up front. <laughs> I needed to get it right up front. I, I wasn't going to say this. Um, I have I have this pick for a couple reasons. Um, blank check is a, a fun movie. Um, I think there are many examples, uh, you know, in the history of Hollywood, where two different studios will come out with basically the same movie at the same time: A Bug's Life versus Ants, or uh, Dante's peak versus volcano armageddon versus deep impact and blank check i don't know actually if blank check is the more beloved one versus richie rich but i remember them coming out roughly around the same time about a a young boy who suddenly has like uh, all the money in the world and what does he do with it the reason i love the macintosh in blank check is uh basically <laughs> This young boy who is adept at using the Macintosh. What, what kind did you say it is again? A Performa 600. Amazing. Which is also great because it's like part of a rags to riches story. If you really care about what the Macintosh product lines were, he went from a Performa to being a millionaire. <laughs> um, he forge, He uses his Performa to forge a check for a million dollars, which he is then able to successfully cash and become a millionaire. That's the plot of the movie. Um, what makes this Macintosh so relevant to me is that uh, he's just a kid and he conducts a lot of his initial business and purchases over the phone because it would be suspicious to have a kid with a million dollars. And so the first thing he does is buy a mansion. It's like a castle mansion. And he's negotiating with the real estate firm over the phone using his Macintosh's like text-to-speech 
um, feature, but it's not the, the, like the basic one that was built into the system. It's one gussied up for Hollywood that has animated talking lips on the screen as it reads out what he wants to say into the phone. And, uh, the voice is a lot better than your built in Fred. Um, but the, like the, the big reason is that he realizes he has to use a fake name. Um, cause they're, they're going to, if they look up who this kid Preston is, they'll realize it's like, it's an 11 year old boy. Um, and so there's the scene that I've put into our show notes, um, from the movie where he's panicking, looking around his room, and then it zooms in at the actual Macintosh Performa 600 on the front of the computer. And he goes, aha. And you hear, um, back at cut to the real estate agent and they're listening over the phone and you hear the plain talk, uh, text-to-speech voice go, My name is Macintosh. Oh, I saw this movie when it came out, or shortly thereafter. I have no recollection of any of these scenes. This is truly amazing. Yep. <laughs> Just to put this movie on the timeline, for anyone who isn't familiar, Blank Check came out in February of 1994. The Macintosh Performa 600 was introduced in September of 1992 and was discontinued in October of 1993. So he's using an old Performa at that. It really just shows where how far he came. Incredible. Okay, it is it's off the board. Yep. <laughs> Anything else on that? No, that's that's really it. The, just the fact that the Macintosh more or less becomes a character in the movie is why I had to go with it first. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it has a speaking role. <laughs> it does. Okay. Uh, this next one, my first pick in the first round, we have a couple of things here, and I think that this is going to take just one of three out of the list. Oh, I think I know where you're going. I am going to go for a Macintosh that appeared on the beloved sitcom Seinfeld. Oh, and I am going to pick his 20th anniversary Macintosh because... I was never a huge Seinfeld fan. I'm still not a huge Seinfeld fan. I know, hold it against me, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And the show was famous for having, as part of the main set piece in in the living quarters, being a Macintosh. And usually a more classic Macintosh than that. But I have to go with the 20th anniversary Macintosh, which of course appeared later in the show's run, just because I think it is even more representative of the absurdity of Seinfeld's apartment, (laughs) which many commentators have pointed out that for the people who are the characters in that show living in New York, they have an absurd amount of space. So obviously they have some secret, secret source of funds, which is where they were able to buy the $10,000 20th anniversary Macintosh. <laughs> so I think it is just perfectly fitting for the vibe that they were unintentionally conveying for the set of Seinfeld. This is a great pick, too, because I was racking my brain. Um, I'm positive that there's some kind of science fiction or like action thriller where a 20th anniversary Mac is used to convey like, like the height of technological achievement where like the head of a corporation or the head of some, you know, fabulously wealthy organization uh, uses and has and uses a 20th anniversary Mac um, just to signify that like, yes, they're wealthy, but I couldn't place it. And if I had, I would have put it in my list and you put Seinfeld's for basically the same reason. It's just such a sign of wealth. (laughs) especially in New York City. Um, So this is kind of a a spiritual, uh, I would have picked this too. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, there are some other Tams that uh, will link to the the whole page of of Tams. And yeah, I think that, while I won't spoil for any potential picks, we can come back to it at the end. We're moving on to round two. And now I don't know, I don't know how, how to be strategic here. If like my weird picks could stay on the board and so I should go for a more riskier pick or not. Um, all right, I'm going to do it. My, my second round pick is the Macintosh portable <laughs> from salute your shorts. All right. I see the theme that you're going with here. It, it's a draft. You are most welcome to pick whatever you want. This was another one that when it went in our document, I went, what? So yes, I want to hear more. <laughs> 
This is something I actually remembered from watching the show. It's owned by a character on the show named Sponge, who is the like the archetype of the nerd who goes to summer camp. Others are kind of like alpha males, pretty girls, jocks, etc. Sponge is the nerd. And of course, a nerd would bring a computer to summer camp. And I remember footage of him actually having the Macintosh portable on his bunk in his cabin at camp. And a fictional series or otherwise, I believe this is the only time I've ever seen non-promotional material of a Macintosh portable in the wild. Um, So, of course, the kid would bring it to the nerdy kid would bring it to summer camp. Uh, despite the fact that it, you know, it weighed however many pounds, could barely survive off of uh, being plugged into the wall. Um, and when I went back to put it into our big board of draft picks, uh, it took me a while to find um, actual evidence, actual footage of him using it. But I was able to find uh, uh, <laughs> the entire second episode of the first season is on YouTube. And I've put a link in the show notes with a timestamp to goes. That goes right to him using it on his bunk. Probably the episode I remembered him using it in. I picked this mostly because I think the world needs evidence that at least one person bought and used a Macintosh portable. And it just so happened to be a nerdy kid at summer camp. Okay, this is fantastic. And I remember the show Salute Your Shorts, a Nickelodeon show for people who are not familiar. And I did not remember quite how old it was. Although, yeah, I guess it was on when we were in elementary school, like early elementary school. Yeah, so early 90s. Yes, so it ran for a whopping two seasons in 1991 and 1992. I thought it was a few years later than that, so I thought that the portable was a little bit out of place. But actually, um, the first episode of this show was released before the Macintosh PowerBook 100, so it was their only choice to go with the portable. I did not realize that it only lasted two seasons. I think this was just that age of Nickelodeon where they knew what their hits were and they just re-ran them over and over and over again. It always felt like there were maybe six or seven seasons of the show, but it was just the same two over and over again. They just ran it five days a week until 1998. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) All right. For my next pick, uh, I think there's only one way to introduce it. Four, eight. 15, 16, 23, 42. Execute. I'm going to pick not a Mac, but an Apple II. The Apple II in the Swan Station in Lost. Great pick. I mean, this is a huge plot point in the early seasons of Lost. First, the discovery of the hatch. Finding that there is someone inside and finding what he has been doing every 108 minutes for the past 20-some years. And the answer is, he's been using this Franken-Apple II. So, spoilers for early-ish seasons of Lost. (laughs) This is the computer that Desmond has been using for a long time, and the whole purpose of it is that it is hooked up to a system that is discharging some sort of electromagnetism, preventing it from building up. And to do that, there is this computer terminal, and you have to type in the passphrase of numbers and press execute in a window every 108 minutes. And there is, of course, a lot of lost lore. There is a huge lost wiki, and we will link to the page on the lost wiki that is called Swan Computer. And it's really interesting the way that they pieced together this prop for the show. I guess you could call it Desmond's computer, practically, for the purpose of our our picking rules. Um, I mean, he lived with it for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) But the prop that they have, at, at first glance, it really does look like an Apple II. But, of course, every frame of Lost has been picked apart to death, especially before the show ended. Everyone wanted answers, clues, any anything that you could glean from it. And so it's been determined that this is, like I said, kind of a Franken-Apple computer. The base of it is an Apple II Plus, by all accounts. And the monitor is the monitor for an Apple III. Then 
elsewhere around the station are other computers of the similar vintage. In terms of the timeline, they don't 100% match up. I went digging in the lost lore. The station was set up after, quote, the incident in 1977, at which point you might have been able to, you know, maybe it took them a while to build it because it's a big underground bunker, uh, give them a year, and then the Apple II would have been out, but not the Apple III, but hey, it's Hollywood, right? (laughs) One thing that is shown in some detail and that I will link to the image specifically, is one of the ways that people notice that it was an Apple II is by the distinctive keyboard. This goes back to our keyboards episode way back. (laughs) In this still shot, obviously the thing that they were focusing on was the entering of the numbers and, quote, pressing the button. And what it is on the Apple II keyboard, there is a button that is labeled Execute. And the buttons above it are interesting. There are arrow keys, right and left, because the Apple II only had right and left arrow keys, no up and down. And above that, return, R-E-P-T, report, I don't know, Uh, and reset. All of the other keys on this keyboard are genuine Apple II keys. And then in this still, it's funny, the execute button is actually the right shift key. You're right. But... They digitally altered it, I think. Could could be a sticker, could be a digitally altered. Hard to tell. With this new text that says execute. And it's pretty well font matched. But if you look at the rest of the keys, the key that says execute, the text is like sharper and whiter. And if you look at it, they used the prop itself was a genuine Apple II. You can tell, because if you look up two keys at the return key, it has wear on it, because you hit the return key all the time. But the in-show conceit is that the execute button had to be pushed multiple times every day, and it is pristine. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a funny little detail. Again, only if you go in for the frame-by-frame analysis, which I think is totally part of the lost spirit. This was on my list of picks, uh, like you, I mean, for all the reasons that you just pointed out and I didn't even recall the, the like frame by frame level detail of looking at the keyboard itself. But, um, I was a big fan of lost, like actively as the show was on the air, 120 hours, I'll never get back. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And it had said, and that's, um, that was why this computer, which was part of the hatch, uh, which was in my opinion, and I think a, a widely held opinion like the first two to three seasons of lost were far and away the best before it kind of spiraled out of control and uh the hatch in particular was one of the most compelling story arcs of the show and it kind of all boiled down to this one computer um so yeah like my favorite part of one of my favorite shows ever had an apple machine in it it's a great pick oh one other thing in terms of the actual prop design is there are a few more overhead shots of it. So on the Apple II, if you look for images of the Apple II, it's got the big Apple II nameplate right above the keyboard. And for the show, they popped that off and put in a Dharma Initiative oh, of course. logo there. <laughs> so it's it's not officially an Apple II, but it's totally an Apple II. All right, my third pick is going to be the Quadra 700 from Jurassic Park. It had to come off the board. I'm surprised it made it all the way to round three, honestly. Me too. And of course, the the specific one owned or operated by the character Dennis Nedry. We said at the top, no office computers, and this is technically an office computer, but he has made it his computer. That's exactly right. Yeah, it looks like um, from different... Uh, views around the office in the scene that everyone is issued the same Quadra 700 that I think is coupled to a uh, SGI, Silicon Graphics monitor, CRT monitor. Those are the Unix systems. She knows them. (laughs) Yes, I was going to bring that up. I wanted to double check. uh, And I think we only see the monitor in the Unix system scene. So for all intents and purposes, that is a pure SGI workstation, you know, running Unix. Um. But yeah, Dennis Nedry's Quadra, 
it's it's all about the software he's running on it. The the desktop background is a, a woman in a bathing suit or lingerie. Um, when it zooms in on him, like executing his uh, his basically a virus to turn off the security systems around the park. Um, it's, you know, it's got a whole bunch of windows with code open, but the code is in nine point Monaco, which reminds me of programming in HyperTalk and HyperCard. And then of course, of course, it's the fact that when anyone else tries to execute a command on his quadra, it pops up his custom animated, uh, 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 you didn't say the magic word, which he totally patched together in Reset it. <laughs> exactly. And that's why this specific quadra deserves to be on the list. Jurassic Park is not a movie about dinosaurs. It's a cautionary tale about computer information security. (laughs) And this machine was at the heart of it. And yes, it is specifically a quadra 700. Top of the line. Spared no expense. Okay, for my round three pick, I'm going to go for one that's a little bit more obscure, although maybe one of the more recent properties that we'll be talking about and I am going to pick Jessica Jones's childhood iMac G3. Ah. This machine makes a cameo appearance, I will say. It is not one of the major plot drivers, but it makes a cameo appearance late in the first season of the Jessica Jones TV show from Marvel slash Netflix. And the way that this appears is that her creepy supervillain stalker has put together an entire replica of her childhood home, which is super weird. Yeah. And her entire childhood bedroom down to the CDs that she owned and her desk, which has atop of it a Bondi Blue iMac G3. Now, the reason that this caught my attention when I was watching the show great. It's an iMac. Okay. Let it go right by. Well, there's a slight division of opinion among people in our Apple community about whether you should put stickers on things. And one of the notable characteristics of this computer is that, yes, it is an original, maybe Rev A, maybe Rev B, Bondi Blue, iMac G3, and it has stickers on the side (laughs) because it belonged to a teenager who did not care about such things. (laughs) And that was what caught my attention about it. Uh, I've scoured high and low trying to find an actual picture of it. Uh, Hopefully before we publish this episode, I will be able to do that because it really is a striking little scene to be like, okay, you are clearly establishing a moment in time in this character's past. That's sort of the interesting piece about it from the the narrative perspective. It's like, well, this show is taking place in the present, and this prop has been unearthed to unnaturally recreate this character's past for when she was a teenager in 1998. And then the stickers got slapped on the side as well. <laughs> I saved it for the third round, but that was kind of the machine that got me thinking about this entire draft process in the first place. Uh, it was the one, the most recent example that I had seen that stuck in my mind and got me going down the list of there are so many, so many more. It's an interesting pick, too, especially from the sticker angle, because I think it's the first one, aside from the Apple II, which was customized for like the appearances of the environment uh this is the first one that's been at least uh, physically customized uh to represent the character doing so so it's it's like it's the first one with like real personality (laughs) instead of like a a stock mac being used by a character i don't know if i ever finished the first season of jessica jones uh her nemesis is david tennant or played by david tennant right yes kilgrave who creeped me out i did not enjoy that show and in fact i think i think that episode was about as far as i got because i got to the point in that season where i was like okay all of our protagonists are just doing the dumbest thing possible repeatedly to advance the plot i'm out (laughs) i've heard that that's a common criticism in the marvel netflix series like or at least like iron what is it iron fist was pretty universally disliked 
All right. Time for our final round of uh, purposeful picks before we get into the, the bring out your dead round. Um, so here at this point, my, my top four have been exhausted. So I'm going to go into my reserves Ed, because you were so gracious in one of your picks and left opportunities open. I'm going to take another one of Seinfeld's max. And uh, specifically I'm going to take his power book duo, which was replete with a duo doc and Apple CRT monitor. I think that's a excellent pick. I don't think I've seen in a Seinfeld episode at this point in my life from start to finish. I've only seen clips. Um, I've seen Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I enjoy very much, and maybe I would like Seinfeld. But um, I w- even with that, I was, of course, aware that he his was a character that had Macintosh's prominently displayed. Um, and I think that the duo and the duo doc and that whole dream of like, it's a full-fledged computer at your desk, but it's thin and light and portable for when you want to travel with it um, is something that we're all still more or less chasing. We, we with our uh, modern MacBooks that only have one cable to connect to a monitor and an external graphics card and all these things. So it's, it's Seinfeld's popularizing of a Mac that um, I think Seinfeld or, or other quote unquote creative professionals <laughs> would want to have on their desk today. So that's, that's my fourth pick the duo with duo doc setup in Seinfeld. I think that it's appropriate that Seinfeld just for how outsized the influence of the show is gets two picks in our draft. And we should probably use this time to just round it out and talk about uh, the remaining Seinfeld Max. Yeah. Right. While we're, while we're on the subject. Uh, so the other one, the one that we didn't pick was the SE30. Obviously, that was the first one chronologically. And this is where we also uh, have to point out uh, what has what you've put in our outline here as Christina Warren's excellent journalism. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Friend of the show, Christina Warren, back when she was at Mashable and when she was in New York City. This is an article from 2015. Hulu put together a pop-up exhibit that recreated the Seinfeld apartment. It, it was in New York where where this happened, and it was there was a huge line to get in, and people basically got to you know walk through it for like five minutes and then out the other door. And of course, she went, and immediately she was furious because on the desk was a PC, yeah. <laughs> like a very ugly desktop form factor PC with an ugly monitor and an ugly keyboard. And uh, she got in touch with them. (laughs) And uh, they made things right, more or less. So they they did, in fact, replace the the boxy Windows PC with uh, a computer that I barely knew existed, a Macintosh Performa 200. So the Performa line was... Well, the Performa line was a little bit of everything, including including all-in-one designs that I did not know were part of the line. So the Performa 200, it looks like a Mac Classic, yeah, which kind of looks like a SE30, which kind of looks like the original. My guess is that they got the first thing that looked like an all-in-one 80s-slash-90s Mac that they could find on Craigslist. Yeah. And it was a Performa 200. Also, she has a great picture of it because she went back and stood in line again to see it and make sure that things were in fact right. And has a great picture of it. The keyboard, however, is still the IBM keyboard. (laughs) Points for effort and uh, major props to Christina for getting them to actually make the change in the first place. Of course. I I think it's one of the most on-brand things she has ever done. And it's delightful. They could have saved trouble if they just... Got a TAM in the first place. (laughs) Imagine people coming just to take selfies with it. (laughs) I've invoked the name of Christina, and this was this was in the next tier on my on my list, and she'll be furious if I don't pick it. So I am going to pick with my final final official pick, Seth Cohen's iMac G4. Oh, nice. So Seth Cohen, major character of the OC which aired when we were like freshmen in college. And 
This is another case of the spare no expense, get the top of the line. So he is a rich OC teenager. And so in his bedroom, he has an iMac G4 with the Apple Pro speakers, the full setup. And I remember that I was watching this show because it was the network show my freshman year. And I remember that the summer before college, I got a PowerBook G4 to take to school. And my family got one of the iMac G4s that was on clearance from the previous year's model. And that stayed at home. (laughs) Ah, nice. But that was the kind of thing that was, you know, in my world, this was a family computer that you bought on clearance. And in the world of the OC, this is the computer that you give to your 16-year-old for their exclusive use. Exactly. In their bedroom. Yeah. (laughs) And so that is, I think, a perfect example of, again, using the Mac as a signifier in the appropriate way, not the Seinfeld, like, what on earth is happening here kind of way, but as an actual piece of characterization. And it does get used in the show. And I saw a screen grab of it where it is actually running. And I forget if it was running Classic or whether it was running OS ten. I think it's OS ten, but I think he's definitely using Internet Explorer because that was the default browser on OS ten at the time. So it's one of those things where, in this case, I do believe that the computer got use. And because, I mean, the way that they were filming, I'm sure that that show was high enough budget as it was. They didn't really need to do like post processing on the screen for the iMac, as long as they were doing something that vaguely looked like what was supposed to be happening in the plot, or, you know, I'm doing schoolwork, so a Word document is open kind of thing. Um, it all worked out. And I think it it figures in to like tiny pieces of plot where I don't know if it's when, uh, spoiler alert for the OC, <laughs> Seth decides to like run away from home on his boat <laughs> on his boat yeah <laughs> yeah or at a different occasion um either help ryan run away from home or get to somewhere he needs to go via bus and on one or both of those occasions he uses the imac g4 in his room to like look up the bus schedule or look up maps to tahiti <laughs> um and, I, and that may even be what he's doing in the screen grab you found uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a Mac that got used and not just like incidental usage, but, uh, things that actually figured into major plot points. Rich kids use the internet to <laughs> get into and out of trouble. <laughs> exactly. Okay. We've made it through four rounds and there is still a lot left. So, uh, I'm going to turn it back to you, Brian, to go through some of the things that you want to hit and then I'll take a few more and we'll wrap up. I'm going to start with two tangerine <laughs> computers. The best color of computer. It's indisputed. <laughs> the first is a slot-loading iMac G3 and tangerine in the first Zoolander movie, which uh, really only exists so they can pay off the <laughs> a joke that lasts longer than maybe it should, where uh, they're looking for files related to whatever they're doing, and the joke is that these male models don't understand what the phrase, the files are in the computer, means. They think there are printouts <laughs> physically located inside this translucent computer. And the first time they pay off this joke, they're kind of hitting at it like uh, the apes in 2001, I think. 2001 with the monolith. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, the second time they pay off this joke, they actually smash the computer to try and find the files inside. <laughs> and you linked to this clip, and we'll put it in the show notes. And... A genuine, actual Tangerine iMac G3 was sacrificed for this purpose. Destroyed. (laughs) And you think like, oh, remember around that era when you would go into like an office supply store and in the furniture section in the back, they would have like a fake just shell of an iMac. But if you look at this, you can slow it down and it's like, nope, nope, that is a bona fide CRT explosion a large chunk of tangerine goes exploding off the one side. <laughs> they they bought an honest-to-God iMac and wrecked it for that scene. 
And uh, the second of the two Tangerine machines is the Tangerine iBook in Legally Blonde, which is used uh, also to great effect to show that like everyone else at Harvard Law School has boring laptops uh, <laughs> that are all different shades of gray. And Elle Woods, the plucky girl who wears pink, brings a Tangerine iBook G3 to class. There are so many iBooks iBook G3s in movies, uh, go look at the list on the site that we linked to, the um, Starring the Computer, uh, a whole bunch in all the different colors, except poor Key Lime. Key Lime never had anywhere. <laughs> a lot of graphite iBooks uh, because uh, they looked cool, but they didn't want them to be too jarring. But the uh, the quirky Tangerine iBook is, is perfect in, in Legally Blonde. Any others you want to touch on? I'll just do a quick shout out uh, to our episode 27, which I believe was about advertising. Uh, yeah, because um, it featured, we we covered in that episode that um, there was a little bit of product placement in the very first Mission Impossible movie of uh, PowerBook 540C that Apple actually used to their advantage and created a little micro-marketing website at a subdomain, I think, um, to show how like, the the ultra futuristic power book is preferred by secret agents everywhere. So like that's that's just like a very blatant Mac in a fictional role. Let's see some ones that I didn't pick. One that I thought was worth mentioning, but is in a movie that I've never seen, uh, is the Power Book thirty four hundred in the nineteen ninety eight rom com. You've got mail. Um, we'll link to the the page for the whole movie for this because it's funny just how they're juxtaposed that. First of all, that this the whole pretense of this movie boils down to two computers. And they're summed up by the site here. It says, IBM ThinkPad 300. Joe demonstrates his hard-headed business credentials by using the IBM ThinkPad. <laughs> whereas Kathleen demonstrates her gentle, creative nature by using the Apple. Oh my gosh. And it's got a great shot of the screen of the PowerBook. And, oh no, this isn't one... One of the things I love in many of the power books featured on this site and in movies in general is that if you used actual power book footage for the purpose of the film, the control strip was always there. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Frequently expanded and hanging out in the bottom of the screen. And you know that whoever was sitting at the computer manipulating it had no idea what that was for. <laughs> but you're right. Sadly, in this screenshot, it's not there. This this entire movie is predicated on the cross-platform nature of AOL. Yeah. What else? A couple of more tangential ones. Oh, Brian, you had mentioned some that came up in earlier shows. Uh, when we did our Newton episodes, there's the there's Steven Seagal's Newton in Under Siege 2, which he uses to send a fax from a train. <laughs> um, we will link to the clip of that in the show notes in German because it's the only pirated copy on YouTube, but it's Steven Seagal, so it works somehow. <laughs> a TV show that I really enjoyed several years ago was the uh, spy comedy Chuck. And there were various Macs in that show. Uh, apparently one that appears very briefly in the, in the first episode is Chuck's own computer, which is a cheese grater power Mac. Uh, I, I think it gets like taken away from his house. <laughs> and one that gets lots of mentions, especially in the age of Siri is the Macintosh plus that didn't, I think, qualify for our draft choices because it doesn't belong to someone in particular and it's really a throwaway gag but the macintosh plus in star trek 4 which of course has spawned the line hello computer i hadn't seen this scene until you put it in our show notes and it's hilarious oh yes he, he tries to talk into the mouse it's very funny <laughs> i think neither of us uh picked this particular run of max because i would assume neither ed nor i have seen uh sex in the city but I feel like it warrants a mention because uh, the main character, Carrie, was always typing away on a power book or I think at one point an iBook when her power book gets broken. This is all according to recaps from starring the computer. Um, but I think it, it was pointed to 
when it was on the air as uh, one of the most prominent examples of product placement in a very like critically regarded and highly watched television show. Um, and I think it even, it may have been mentioned in a Mac addict because one of the early laptops she uses is one of the, like the early model PowerBook G3s where when you're actually using it, the illuminated Apple on the backside is upside down. So in all of these juicy shots that, you know, draw attention to Apple, the Apple is upside down. Um, and she later upgrades to a titanium power book. Um, but yeah, I think it's, while it's not uh, high on either of our draft boards, it's, it's worth an honorable mention. Yeah, definitely. Suffice it to say, uh, during its initial run, we were not in the target demographic for Sex in the City. That's for sure. Um, and yes, while perhaps prominently placed, not so much of a plot point as some of the other machines on our list. And I think I'm going to conclude by put it, by mentioning one that if we don't mention, I'm sure people will get furious at us for. And that is Jeff Goldblum's PowerBook 5300 in Independence Day. Just remember, the third step is Earthlink. Right. I think that one's extra funny because of the subsequent use of Jeff Goldblum in the iMac marketing run. Yeah, it's funny enough on his own that he's able to like wirelessly destroy um, an, an, an entire alien warship with his power book. But yeah, the fact that he later became uh, tied to Apple in other ways makes it extra funny. Okay, so I think that wraps up our picks for prominently placed fictional Macs and some other Apple devices. Uh, there are a lot of these, and we picked ones that were our favorites. And we're going to give you those links that we mentioned to resources where you can find even more of these. And if you have one that was just right at the front of your mind that somehow we skipped over, that's why I had to mention Independence Day there. Um, if you have a favorite one that we didn't pick, please, by all means, get in touch with us. I know that sometimes you listen to drafts on podcasts and they go, don't tell us the things that we didn't pick. We're asking just the opposite. We want to hear all of these uh, and find out the ones that we missed because they are genuinely fun to uncover. And you go through these sort of progressive layers of like, oh, here's a link. Oh, here's a couple screen grabs. Can I actually find a scene of that? Uh, and seeing what creative people have done with Apple is very interesting, especially in an era where now we have to wonder what Apple will do with creative people. <laughs> so if you want to send us those pics or any other feedback on this episode, you can get in contact with us through our website, simplebeep.com, or on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. And you can reach each of us individually on Twitter as well. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.